Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I could be culpable and have an enormous, crazy sentence of decades in prison. So, of course, the prosecutors like that. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. We just wrapped up the story of Zachariah Peterson, found guilty of second-degree felony murder. Of course, during Zach's episodes, we spoke about the felony murder rule and the controversy surrounding it. The fact that the United States is still the only country left in the world to completely abolish this rule. Just like with all the other cases we discuss, I like to wrap it up with a man that they call the voice of reason. Michael Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, is a defence attorney with decades of trial experience and a wealth of knowledge when it comes to the US legal system. So who better to discuss the felony murder rule with than the man himself? Hey, Jack, how you doing? Here he is. How are you, buddy? Good, mate. How are you? Pretty good. It's a Sunday night and uh, just getting ready for... Got a couple of days left of a trial that's going on, so I've been hit, hitting that kind of 24-7 for about the last week or two. Big trial? Yeah, it's an investor fraud case in federal court. Uh, we've been going about five days so far. I think we have about two days left, so uh, interesting case. Are we uh, positive for a positive outcome? <laughs> <laughs> well, you never can po- be that positive because you don't know the, what the outcome is going to be, but yeah. I think it's gone pretty well or better than we could have expected so far, so... We're definitely uh, optimistic. Do you um, have some sleepless nights when you're in the middle of a trial? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's kind of this situation where, you know, you go from about nine to five and then you take a little break, get some food, and then you're focusing on all your cross-examinations for the next day. So you're up late and then you're up early and it's kind of all you can kind of think about for the duration of the trial till it's done. And then uh, you come kind of out of the fog and back to life after you get the verdict. Ready for the next one. Yeah. And we'll have to be, we'll have to be. Um, my most important question for you today, Jack, though, is what do Aussies do to celebrate Halloween? Uh, does such a not exist over there? It's becoming more popular. Um, it's one of those ones where, some people are like all for it and other people are not that into it. Um, but it has become a lot more popular over the last few years. I'm the t- type of guy who switches the lights off in the house and, you know, sits down low so no one can see that I'm home. The, some would, call, <laughs> some would say, some would say I'm, a, I'm a Grinch. <laughs> yeah, well, in the old days, you know, we would the kids would egg those houses. They'd take eggs and throw them at the house. My, my house so, gets uh, egged my- anyway, Mr. Leonard, not, even when it's not <laughs> Halloween. Uh, for some reason, well, people love to egg my it's house. It's your show. your show. <laughs> yeah, you know, I yeah. think that's it. <laughs> Is it considered like a contrived American invention, oh, the yeah. holiday itself? Yeah, 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 absolutely. But it is, though, isn't it? I mean, all, but let's be honest, most holidays are contrived holidays made up by <laughs> made up by a hallmark who wants to sell some cards. <laughs> I would agree. But do the kids have like a day 
on that day or that weekend that they actually are allowed to trick or treat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the trick and treating happens. So it's uh, it's gone from just knocking on random houses to knocking on houses that are covered in decorations and and that sort of stuff. So yeah, we, I did it last year with my kids, uh, begrudgingly. <laughs> <laughs> well, if every if every other kid's doing, it, you pretty much got to let them go. I well, think, right? yeah, yeah, I can't be that that father, can I? And plus, in Australia, I don't know if the Americans do this, but um, the dads fill up an esky full of beers, and we walk around having a beer while the kids do the trick or treating. Yeah, not as much, but yeah, that definitely happens, and, and it's more controlled. You know, in the old days, we would take when I was a kid, which is a long time ago, Jack. We would take pillowcases, and we'd be out for hours till like ten p.m. Now it's very controlled. You yeah. Know? Kids can only go from four to seven. So curmudgeons like you can turn off their lights at seven and, and not be in any trouble. Yeah. Well, look, speaking of being in trouble, let us get to uh, the most recent case um, of Zachary Peterson, uh, the young man who found himself in trouble after a drug deal gone bad. Uh, as we heard in the case, you know, found not guilty of armed criminal action, uh, but would be found guilty of uh, the second degree murder uh, off the back of felony murder rule. My name is Zachariah Peterson. I'm incarcerated uh, in uh, Missouri Penitentiary uh, down here in Charleston, Missouri. I've been convicted of second-degree felony murder. I was sentenced to 30 years. I've been incarcerated for 13. My counsel cross-examined the foreman and all 12 jurors, and they told him Multiple jurors told him that once they went back to deliberate, all they said was, who thinks he's a shooter? Nobody raised their hand. They said, well, I guess we're done here. They were like, oh, hold up, well, we got this felony murder thing. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at MintMobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on the case? Well, it's one of those ones where because of the felony murder rule, it really appears to be tragic and unfair. So it, it's really a, a policy discussion. 
Uh, but I guess you, you, got, you got to start with the felony murder rule itself, which just so your listeners know, especially those who aren't in the States, you know, it varies by jurisdiction, you know, so there's about, I think, five or six states in the U.S. who have abolished it entirely. There is no felony murder. There's about 10 that have a more limited view. Uh, for example, you know, California passed a law not too long ago where it eliminates culpability if the person did not actually participate in the killing or was not a major participant in the underlying felony. Uh, but the states that do have it, I think, as your um your guest said, the, the woman who participated in the trial, it's typically limited in, in the jurisdictions that have it to what are called violent felonies or ones that are considered inherently dangerous. And um, I know you've done your research, Jack, but it goes back all the way to 1700s in England, where they really first started with this felony murder rule. And England kept it until I think like the 1950s when they abolished it. So the states are the only ones that still do that. You know, as I said in the show, I, I just find it, um, I mean, I don't like to use the word unfair, but I mean, it's, you know, you look at someone like Zachary Peterson, who was doing the wrong thing, you know, he was selling drugs. I mean, he wasn't selling, you know, he was selling marijuana, which is now, funnily enough, uh, legal in, in the area in which he was selling it. But he was doing the wrong thing at the time. So we know that. And in my opinion, you get caught for doing the wrong thing, you've got to pay the price. And if that's jail time, that's jail time. But for him to be found not guilty of armed criminal action, so the the jury did not um, believe him to be the shooter based off that uh, mobile phone uh, evidence that was brought, then still get a second degree murder charge with you know over thirty years attached to that because he dropped a guy off essentially to buy some drugs. It just seems ludicrous. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think it that is the issue in these cases. Un- unfair, I think, is an appropriate way of looking at it. You know, because it, it adds culpability to, you know, s- someone who just happens to participate in the crime in some way, even if the death is entirely unforeseeable, even if the person had nothing to do with the commission of the acts that led to the death, you know, it wasn't the shooter or a third party was the shooter. And then I think in this case, in, in particular, it just raises the issue of, you know, when is the crime completed? Yeah. And when can you? say that the crime is actually done and therefore, you know, how far do you extend culpability beyond the acts that constitute the underlying felony? Right. Um, because the way, the way the story is portrayed is that he's gone and it sounds like the, the pretty good scientific evidence, which is the historical cell cell tower data uh, puts him obviously not at the scene of the crime, um, you know, minutes, much, I guess a bunch of minutes later, right? Yeah, about 10, 15 um, minutes later, yeah. There, there's a strong argument that that underlying felony was completed and he's gone from the scene. It's it's over, so to speak, and his participation certainly is over. And then the murder killing happens, which you could argue is in the commission of an entirely different set of acts or maybe a different felony. Uh, or maybe entirely unrelated to the original felony. So it's it's a troublesome one, especially when the guy's gone from the scene, clearly shown to be somewhere else. Um, I think the prosecution theory in this case, just like in a lot of them, would be, well, it doesn't matter because really, you know, the theory could be this was a setup that Zach was, you know, basically bringing the buyer there with the, inference that he that knew this was going to happen and i think that's the way they would probably want to sell it to the jury that you know he's he's a participant in the drug deal 
um, that maybe he has some knowledge that there's gonna that this is gonna happen and it's it's all set up. I don't know if they portrayed it that way, but I think that would be one way of portraying it from the prosecution side. The other thing that you know the the lady who I spoke with on the show who was um, assisting in the um, defense for this trial. Um, she speaks of at the end how the you know prosecution go out and do a press conference and say we got the guy we got our, we got justice everyone can you know sleep easy but as she said they didn't get him because it was proven in court that he wasn't the shooter so this, essentially the guy who pulled the trigger and has killed this bloke is still out there somewhere probably committing more crimes if he's willing to shoot someone once chances are he's willing to do it again um, but the prosecution still claim that as as a win for the good guys yeah that was kind of ludicrous to, to try to go out there and say hey we got him everyone can rest assured I mean obviously any fair reading of the case uh, and anyone who watched it or knew anything about it would know that's entirely false and that the real shooter or shooters were at the scene when he wasn't there so that seems very strange that they would go out and take that approach um, I, prosecutors like to grandstand like defense lawyers sometimes of course not me jack no of course like not. To do. always always level-headed <laughs> but let's be honest with the result here uh clearly the 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 person or persons who perpetrated the killing absolutely got away with one here and you're putting a 30-year sentence in a a first or second murder degree conviction on a kid who really had absolutely nothing to do with the with the homicide involved. So, yeah, I, I think it's unfair from that perspective as well. What's interesting was I had those the uh, couple of prosecutors on the show just recently, and I spoke to them about this felony murder rule, and I said, you know, what are your thoughts? And you know, unsurprisingly, they were fans of the the felony murder rule because they said it gives you more options when it comes to prosecuting. And the gentleman on the uh, on the show sort of said to me, he gave me an example. He said, you know. Know, say a guy a guy goes in to rob a store with a gun, not meaning to shoot, the, didn't want to shoot the person there, was just using it to scare them, goes in and for some reason the, the clerk behind the counter tries to wrestle the gun from him, shoots him and kills him. Um, and he said, you know, that's where the felony murder rule comes in and it works really well. And I, I didn't think of this at the time, but thinking back on it now since we spoke, for me that would be classified as potentially manslaughter. You know, because to me, that's that's where manslaughter comes in. Does manslaughter get used a lot in the United States? It does. Yeah. But, you know, the prosecutor's perspective, why they said that, in my view, is they love it because it gives them a heavy stick and you're charged with potentially a felony murder and gives them incredible leverage in terms of negotiating yeah, a plea, plea deal. Yeah. Uh, because the person knows, gee, do I really want to risk it all? and go to trial where even though it had absolutely nothing to do with the killing or is completely accidental or some other party or even the victim caused the death, I could be culpable and have an enormous, crazy sentence of decades in prison. So, of course, the prosecutors like that. They like to be able to overcharge in any case. And that's why most cases they are not just charged in one count. A defendant is not charged in one count. They're charged in multiple counts sometimes of the same conduct, but on different days or whatever. But the prosecutors are looking to charge as heavy as they can. But why? Why is that? Why do they want to make these horrendously huge sentences? Why? I, I think, number one, some of them are simply true believers that, you know, draconian sentences are appropriate in, in any and all cases with very little um, gray area, right? And that they view their job is to try to uh, get justice, so to speak, and justice to them means heavy sentences. But more practically, Jack, it really comes down to charging multiple counts, multiple offenses gives them at trial a great chance to win 
because a jury just has to find a defendant guilty of one of those counts. And of course, the sentence, sentencing consequences are going to vary uh, in terms of what count is found guilty. But if you're going to charge three or four or six or 20 counts, probabilities are you have a better chance of getting a guilty on some of those. But more importantly, as you know, in our system, a, a giant, enormous amount of cases are pled out. There is no trial at all. Yeah. And this gives prosecutors a huge advantage because you're negotiating with a defendant and his counsel and say, hey, look, you know, we'll let you plead to this count, which is, let's say it's three to six or five to seven or whatever. Uh, and or or you can take a roll of the dice and go to trial and you might get 30 or 50 on the felony murder. So it, it is it is entirely unfair. And it's one of the many ways in our system and from a defense lawyer's perspective, that's very much stacked up against a defendant. And it makes it very difficult for a defendant to make the choice to go to trial when they know that there's this enormous odds against them that one count will be found guilty or that if they lose, the consequences are incredibly uh, high for them. And I want to stick it because I, I actually just um, this morning before I spoke with you, I was speaking to another gentleman who's incarcerated in Michigan, and that's a story that will come out soon. But um, we spoke about his sentence because he got a life sentence without possibility of parole because, again, he chose to fight the charges against him for this murder. And we spoke about this plea deal, you know, and he said, uh, I obviously I wasn't willing to take a plea because I didn't do it and I wanted to fight this. And obviously he got the maximum. And, I, and as I said to him, I said, yeah, so, and I said, you know, he's been in prison for now for over 30 years. And I said, if you if you just said you did it and, and took a plea, would you have been out by now? He goes, oh, a decades ago. He said, you know, there's, he said it's actually been very hard recently because uh, a number of people that he knows within the facility who, are, who have murdered multiple people uh, got released um, and, and were going off back home to their families. And that's where I look yeah. at this, this, plea, this plea deal stuff and, you know, and you, you're punishing people for saying, no, I'm not going to admit to this. I'm going to go to trial. Um, you know, instead of, I don't get, I just, and that's the other thing I'll never understand is that, you know, that they're going to punish people further by taking, for, for going to trial. It's like, well, you go to trial and you're going to potentially get the maximum or just say you did it and we'll give you 20 years. Um, I just, yeah, I, again, it, I'll never it, understand that. It does that. make a lot of sense. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. I mean, we get into the bigger questions, which I know you like to address, Jack, but, you know, Deterrence is one thing, you know, uh, people who are proponents of these laws would say, well, from a deterrence standpoint, which is one of the goals of the criminal justice system, if people know that if they commit these certain violent felonies and the death results, that they're going to be charged with felony murder and potentially get a 30 year sentence or, or life sentence or whatever, they're less likely to commit the crime. OK, the reality is that a statute on the books that penalizes somebody in that fashion, it's extremely unlikely that the criminal is actually thinking of those things and is either going to do the crime or not do the crime because there's a felony murder rule on the books. It's just very far-fetched, right? And even in, there's been so many studies and they appear in judicial opinions all the time in the United States, this concept of deterrence, you know, is a defendant, is the public actually generally deterred by reading about a sentence that somebody else got or are they generally deterred because there's a law on the books that says here's how you may be punished generally uh most people who've studied the issue say no there really isn't that that deterrent effect and that most people aren't you know specifically deterred you know because of their prior uh conviction for something that doesn't even necessarily you know 
go into their uh, thought process for whether they can, can commit a, another crime or not. So yeah. you kind of look at the larger issues in the system, uh, but with the felony murder rule, you end up with some very, what appear to be very unfair and, a, and unjust results. Like you, you mentioned a couple in your show about these other kind of, I wouldn't call them wild scenarios, but scenarios that happen that result in felony murder, and we could touch upon some of those. Well, yeah, I mean, the one that shocked me the most was the police shooting, that the police can can shoot someone and that person die, and the the, the people with him can be charged with his murder. Like, you know, I talked about those four African-American kids, I think it was five of them, um, who decided to go and rob some houses. Of course, you know, doing the wrong thing, you shouldn't be doing that, fair enough. But the police turn up at the second house, they get into a shootout, kill one of the kids, and then those other four kids get charged with that but their their mate's murder. Sixty five years, one of them got because he said, "I'm not, I'm not going to plead guilty to this." The other, the other ones pleaded guilty, but the other one, one of them said, "I'm not going to." And sixty five years, yeah. he got it. To, uh, exactly. Yeah, you can have a scenario like you described, where the law enforcement member is the one who actually does the killing, either intentionally or unintentionally, or even the victim or the supposed victim of the crime, you know, let's say they're doing a robbery robbery or a burglary and the occupant or person at the store or whoever, uh, they shoot somebody either intentionally or accidentally, and you're still tagged with the felony murder. So it results in all these different scenarios that seem very unfair, very unforeseeable, right? And uh, just kind of ad hoc. And it, it really adds an element of, of uncertainty to the system that really shouldn't be there. Uh, and that's uh, why you got you know a bunch of states that have said no to this. Yeah. And then states that more recently have said, no, we're going to restrict this. We're going to make it more limited. And Illinois, all, all they all they did was in Illinois here is that they said, OK, in the scenario you just talked about where the with a non a felony participant does the shooting, then that's not going to be something that's covered by felony murder. I think it really comes down to the the people that think it's a good idea. It always comes down to deterrence, this idea of deterrence and or just the idea of pure punishment. Well, if you are going to commit what we believe to be a violent felony or something that's inherently dangerous and someone dies, you know, the idea is that, you know, basically you should pay for it. It's, It's really a punitive issue and a deterrence issue, why they think these statutes are fair. And, and of course, I, I think, you know, really, if, you, if you're in a just system and a just society, looking at the individual facts of the case and not just saying, oh, gee, we could charge them with them, so let's do it, but really see if it, the law can be justly applied and, and based upon the facts and circumstances of the case. And I think the felony murder makes that, um, kind of throws it out the window in, in a lot of prosecutors' minds. One thing I just want to touch on before we wrap up is um, another thing from when chatting with these prosecutors that I actually learned that I wasn't really aware of. And, you know, you're well aware of my uh, disdain for the jury system. And I spoke to them about my disdain for the jury system. And um, one thing I learned from them was they said, you know, that uh, a jury can come back with a decision and say, you know, they could turn around and say, we find this person guilty. Uh, the judge can then excuse the jury and, and actually turn around and say, guys, I heard this evidence as well. I disagree with the jury. There is no way that this person could be found guilty under the evidence that's been brought and overturn that decision. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Does that happen well, very often, though? <laughs> no. <laughs> so in our system, there's there's two opportunities for the judge to do that. So. As you know, in our system, the prosecution goes first. They put on their case. They call their witnesses. We get to cross-examine every witness. And then they rest, right? And the idea is that the burden's on the government. They have to prove your client guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And at that stage of the proceedings, before you even make the choice to put on your case as a defendant, defense lawyer, you move for, you know, judgment of acquittal. Yeah. Basically argue to the court, hey, judge, what they put on, no reasonable jury could find in their favor. Here's why. Okay. Those motions are rarely granted. I mean, percentage wise, probably who knows, less than 5%, less than 1% probably, right? Um, And what a lot of judges will do is they'll hear the argument and say, okay, counsel, thank you. I'll reserve ruling. And why did they do that? Because they want to see what the jury does. If the jury, and when the case is over, comes back with a verdict of not guilty, they don't even have to rule on it. It's 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 no longer an issue, right? Um, but most judges are not then going to, the, the motion they reserved on, they're not later going to grant it. And then, of course, um, if the case continues, they say the government rests, you made that motion, and then as, as a defense lawyer, defendant, you put on any case, right? Uh, and then it goes to the jury, and the jury makes their determination. If they find your client guilty, yes, of course, the judge on a post-trial motion could throw that verdict out, saying, gee, the evidence was insufficient. But again, that happens probably 2 to 3% of the time, if mm. that. So the idea that these prosecutors were selling to you that, oh, we have this safeguard where the judge can intervene and throw it out, it rarely, if ever, happens. Yeah. And so even though we all file a lot of post-trial motions, and one of them is sometimes the, the sufficiency of the evidence, that is a very weak considered a very weak post-trial motion. And so when the case goes on appeal, then, you know, you're rarely, if ever, going to win on the sufficiency of the evidence because it's not the appellate court's job to step in and say, gee, we think the jury could have found it differently. Yeah, The appellate court's just saying, is there enough? Not that we agree with it. Is there enough to sustain a conviction? So your, your best chance on appeal is not to argue, gee, the weight of the evidence wasn't enough. It's to come up with a legal error that the judge made that he admitted evidence he or she shouldn't have done um, or they wouldn't allow you to put in something that you should have some sort of evidentiary issue that occurred before the trial even started or at the trial. So the idea that, oh, we got this great safeguard, the judge is going to ride to the rescue and say it's insufficient almost never happens. Yeah, I mean, they certainly didn't convince me uh, to change my opinion on the jury system, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I still like it. Uh, and I like it better when I win. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Still, yeah, of course. I still, still think it's it's fascinating. I think you would enjoy in, in a normal courtroom when they give you a legitimate chance to question the potential jurors before the trial. I think you would enjoy seeing that because it's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely at some point want to come over that way and uh, and sit on, sit in on uh, on a trial. That's for sure. I'd love to um, to watch the whole process from start to finish. I think it'd be fascinating. Jack, we'll house you here at our house, and uh, we'll we'll take you to trial every day and. And buy you buy you a couple of beers that aren't uh, Fosters. Oh, look, there we go. There's an offer I can't refuse. Sounds good to me. Well, I look <laughs> forward to that, Mr. Leonard. And good luck with your trial, sir. Uh, I uh, I hope you get the uh, the big W uh, and walk away with another win. Um, but yeah, if, we, if we get the win, I'll definitely let you know. If I don't, I won't mention it again. <laughs> okay. <no. laughs> and I won't bring it up unless you do. I promise. <laughs> All right. All good right, to good chat to with you, mate. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. All right. As always, I cannot thank him enough. The man they call the voice of reason from Leonard Trial Lawyers in Chicago, Illinois, Michael Leonard. Uh, thank you so much, as always, for giving up your valuable time to uh, to join us and uh, help us wrap up each one of these cases. And, of course, Mr Leonard will join us after our next case here on One Minute Remaining. Remaining.